In late April 1961, Rafael Trujillo stood on the deck of his yacht, the Angelita, and gazed upon the coast of Barahona. Despite the breathtaking view, 69-year-old Trujillo was in a sour mood. For three decades, Trujillo had ruled over the Dominican Republic with an iron fist, using violence, terror, and paranoia to his advantage. Now, everything he'd built was crumbling, as international and domestic conspiracies against his regime spread like wildfire. It seemed as if the world was determined to destroy him. With a hard smile, Trujillo turned to his associates and asked, Which one of you will be the Judas who will betray me? The men stared at him in disbelief. Did he really believe that they, his loyal deputies, would turn on him? Had Trujillo been certain of treachery in any of his men, they would have been arrested and shot at once. But it seems he was merely venting his fatigue, pessimism, and paranoia. He had no way of knowing that one of his men was indeed planning on killing him. In less than a month, one of Trujillo's closest associates would be aiming a CIA-supplied rifle directly at El Jefe. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at post-World War II Central American and Caribbean dictators Rafael Trujillo of the Dominican Republic, Efrain Rios Mont of Guatemala, and Anastasio Somoza de Baile of Nicaragua. Last week, we explored Trujillo's rise from a humble security guard to leader of the Dominican Republic. We also looked at how he exploited destruction caused by the San Zenon hurricane to solidify his rule. This week, we'll delve into the ways Trujillo transformed his country, unleashed the horrific Haitian massacre, dabbled in international assassination, and ultimately paid the price for his many blunders. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In February 1930, 38-year-old Rafael Trujillo launched a military coup that swept him into power in the Dominican Republic. Though he would accept many official titles during his reign, 
Most simply called him El Jefe, or the boss. From the outset, his rule was marked by assassination, state-sanctioned terror, and political suppression. This policy of cruelty served one goal, helping El Jefe accumulate as much wealth and power as possible. Far from being a political ideologue, Trujillo was determined to make his reign all about himself. This was perfectly encapsulated when he exploited the San Sinone hurricane in September of 1930 as his relief efforts became more about him than the suffering Dominicans. Of course, even with power seemingly shored up and the adoration of the people bestowed upon him, Trujillo knew that there were always going to be challenges to his rule. And in fact, there were. In the first four years of his reign, there were at least 10 conspiracies to overthrow him. It seems the first came from General Desiderio Arias. Desiderio Arias had supported Trujillo's coup, but saw himself also as a caudillo. Unwilling to submit to Trujillo's authority and give up his own power base, Arias attempted to launch a guerrilla war from the countryside. However, Trujillo's troops quickly closed in on him, and on June 21, 1931, Arias was shot in the spine and killed. Of all the early plots against Trujillo, however, by far the most threatening came from Colonel Leoncio Blanco. Blanco commanded the military department of the South and had a dangerous mix of ambition, bravery, and foolhardiness. He was also quite popular among the people in the southern provinces, which made him all the more dangerous. Unfortunately, Blanco committed a cardinal sin in his plotting. Any successful conspirator knows that a scheme needs to have as few people in the know as possible. The more people involved, the more likely that someone will talk. That's what happened to Blanco. After one of his co-conspirators blabbed, Blanco was arrested in June of 1933. He spent a year in solitary confinement, occasionally removed from his cell, only so he could be tortured and interrogated. Finally, he was murdered, although his death was arranged to appear as if he'd hanged himself in his cell. By then, over a hundred other suspected conspirators had been shot. Blanco and Arias had been military threats, and Trujillo had dealt with them effectively, albeit ruthlessly. But the military was not the only place from which insurrection might bubble up. As such, Trujillo also took pains to defang the government so that no minister could seriously challenge him. In March of 1932, a new political party was formed, the Dominican Party. In reality, it was the party of Trujillo. El Jefe was its director and controlled every aspect of it, directly or indirectly. Soon the party's tentacles invaded every corner of the Republic. According to historian Robert D. Crassweller, no Dominican in public life, business, the professions, or the arts could survive outside the ranks. The party was funded by taking a 10% cut out of all member paychecks, money which it used to bankroll social services. The party paid for everything from meals for the poor, new churches, infrastructure projects, and medical care. 
In a culture that highly values reciprocal gift exchange, these social services were a means of making every Dominican feel indebted to the regime. Trujillo provided food, medicine, and new roads, out of the funds he decided not to keep for himself, of course. In return, he demanded absolute obedience. The slightest whiff of disloyalty was punished with utter ruthlessness. A telling example is that of Rafael Yepes. Yepes was a teacher who ran a small school in the capital. One day, a student of his wrote an essay that asserted no Dominican could replace Trujillo. Yepes told the boy that a child like him might grow up to be the leader of the Dominican Republic and might prove to be a better or worse leader than Trujillo. That evening, Yepes and his family were arrested and never heard from again. The entire student body, save the boy who wrote the essay, was hauled off to prison. And in the following days, the government shut down the school. After all, Trujillo knew how important education was. He couldn't allow the youth to absorb the wrong message. Over time, the regime did its best to replace lessons in critical thinking with propaganda. The central myth it encouraged was that before Trujillo, the Dominican Republic had been a backward nation. Textbooks insisted that the country had been driven by internal strife and humiliated by foreigners until Rafael Trujillo saved the country and put it on the path to prosperity. In order to cram this message down adults' throats too, thousands of political meetings and rallies were organized. At the same time, radio stations broadcast such messages at first regularly, then daily, then constantly. According to historian Frank Moya Pons, through that overwhelming propaganda apparatus, which pervaded all aspects of Dominican life, Trujillo managed to institutionalize a non-collectivist totalitarian political system without parallel in any other country in Latin America. In order to root out possible agitators like Yepes and countless others, Trujillo also expanded state surveillance far beyond anything that had been seen in the Dominican Republic prior. His regime introduced wiretapping, opened and read people's mail, and cultivated a vast network of neighborhood spies. In virtually every aspect of Dominican life, Trujillo sought to make himself the dominant figure. As much as possible, nothing was to exist outside or independently of Rafael Trujillo. This applied to economic matters as well, of course. In 1930, Trujillo established a personal monopoly on meat production. This was followed by a milk monopoly, accompanied by the forced closure of other milk sellers, centralization of cacao, rice, salt, tobacco, and coffee industries would come later. By 1934, Trujillo was the richest man in the Dominican Republic. His annual income would be impossible to know for certain, but the American legation estimated that in 1937, still early in the Trujillo era, it was about $1.5 million, or roughly $28 million today. Though Trujillo used the government to amass an astonishing amount of personal wealth, the regime did accomplish some things which were of benefit to the country. 
especially after 1938, when the economy started recovering from the Great Depression, the scale of public works greatly expanded. New roads, bridges, and irrigation canals were built throughout the country. Ciudad Trujillo's port was expanded, and thousands of peasant farmers were given previously uncultivated land to work. Hand in hand with the expansion of agriculture was an expansion in industry. New factories were built to manufacture tobacco, alcohol, shoes, starch, pasta, and vegetable oil. In the years to come, a growing export market triggered an economic boom in the Dominican Republic. More factories were established to produce everything from paper and concrete to paint and chocolate. And thanks to Trujillo's iron grip on the country, these booming companies never had to worry about labor unrest or foreign competition. During Trujillo's reign, industrial sales increased from $13.3 million to $164.4 million. Before his death, Trujillo controlled almost 80% of the Republic's industrial production, which in turn meant that nearly 60% of the population directly depended on him. It should be made clear that Trujillo pursued the economic growth of the Dominican Republic solely to increase his own personal wealth and power. Some Dominicans did see their wages go up, but their prosperity was only a trickle compared to the waterfall Trujillo hoarded for himself. The price Dominicans had to pay for more jobs was to live in a state of constant fear. The erosion of social and familial bonds, the elimination of personal freedoms, and the ever-present threat of murder. As Trujillo worked to increase his power and wealth, he also looked to settle a long-standing dispute with their island neighbors, Haiti. For decades, tensions had been high between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. The mutual hostility was exacerbated by cultural and ethnic differences and the fact that Haiti had occupied the Republic a century earlier. The ill-defined border encouraged poor Haitians to immigrate to the Dominican Republic, upsetting nationalist elements in Dominican society that Trujillo had been instilling. In the mid to late 1930s, Trujillo seemed on the verge of resolving these long-standing issues through negotiations with the Haitian government. But what no one realized was that peace was a mirage, and El Jefe was planning one of the most shocking acts of violence in Caribbean history. Coming up, Trujillo orders the Haitian massacre. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fouls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results. Go deeper inside for affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with party fouls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. 
There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1936, Rafael Trujillo had solidified his autocratic grip over the Dominican Republic. Since he came to power, many Dominicans had been victimized by his regime as it sought to terrify all citizens into submission. Yet the violence thus far paled in comparison to what El Jefe had planned for Haitian immigrants. The border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic has always been porous. Though Haiti is no more than half the size of its neighbor, its population at the time was significantly larger. Adding to the population pressure, deforestation and soil erosion had negatively impacted Haiti's agriculture. Thus, poverty was more acute on the Haitian side. To escape these issues and pursue a better life, many Haitians immigrated to the Dominican Republic or lived in the ill-defined border area. According to historian Frank Moya Pons, for more than a century, Haitians had been peacefully penetrating the Dominican Republic and settling on agricultural lands abandoned by Dominicans during the Haitian-Dominican Wars in the middle of the 19th century. Since the beginning of his reign, Rafael Trujillo had sought to settle the border dispute. And after years of negotiating, a settlement was reached in March 1936. But the treaty had little impact on the real world. Haitian migrants continued to enter Dominican territory to look for work, especially on the large American-owned sugar plantations. In early 1937, in order to control the flow of immigrants, Trujillo limited the number of Haitian workers on Dominican plantations. At the end of the summer, Trujillo toured the border to see if this new policy had curbed the Haitian problem. What he saw apparently disgusted and infuriated him. Despite his efforts to close the border, thousands of Haitian immigrants were still, in Trujillo's eyes, squatting in the Dominican Republic. He decided a more extreme solution was necessary. Between October 2nd and 8th, 1937, Haitians around the Republic were brutally massacred by the Dominican army. In a feeble attempt to make the attack look as if farmers had spontaneously lashed out at Haitians, the killers primarily relied on machetes. In Santiago, between 1 and 2,000 Haitians were seized, hacked into a courtyard, and decapitated with machetes. In Monte Cristi, soldiers bound the hands and legs of a large group of Haitians, then pushed them into the sea. Many of the victims, though ethnically Haitian, had been born on Dominican soil. According to author Robert D. Crassweller, bodies clogged the river. Bodies were piled into obscure little valleys. Bodies lay in village streets and on country roads and in gentle green fields. Trails of blood lay on dusty country lanes up and down the border. The true death toll of the massacre will probably never be known for certain. But the most likely estimate puts the number of victims somewhere between 15,000 to 20,000. Often, El Jefe's motivations, while ruthless, seemed at least coldly pragmatic. But when it came to the Haitian killings, which has been classified as a genocide, 
there was no sense of pragmatism, just blunt hatred tinged with xenophobia and racism. The massacre became an international scandal for Trujillo. Pressure from other nations, particularly from the United States, mounted. Some in Washington threatened withdrawing American recognition of the Dominican Republic, which would undoubtedly hurt the Republic's trade revenue and foreign investments. Ultimately, a settlement was agreed upon between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. The Dominican Republic would pay an indemnity of $750,000. But further negotiations, accompanied by bribes to Haitian government officials, reduced the number to $525,000. The lion's share of that amount wound up in the pockets of corrupt Haitian officials. At the end of the day, the survivors of the massacre were compensated a paltry two cents a head. As for the massacre itself, Trujillo allegedly said, time will justify it. In the meantime, Trujillo's regime felt it had to justify the massacre to ordinary Dominicans. So they mounted an expansive propaganda campaign which proclaimed Trujillo had saved the nation by exterminating defenseless men, women, and children. The propaganda seemed to partially work. Domestically, the response to the massacre was mixed. Some were horrified, while others bought into the regime's nationalist and xenophobic messages. Meanwhile, in order to clamp down on the border, Dominican families were settled in the area and new military outposts constructed. The Catholic Church was invited to participate, sending Jesuit missionaries to suppress the practice of Haitian voodoo. Though the international condemnation of the Haitian massacre was a severe test for Trujillo, he survived. The Haitian government, especially under Stenio Vincent, was too weak to seriously threaten him or retaliate. And while Washington expressed its displeasure, the attack had not been on American interests. Plus, the compensation paid by the Dominican government seemed to settle things. Nevertheless, to alleviate American concerns, Trujillo decided not to seek a third term as president in 1938. But of course, Trujillo was in no way giving up even an ounce of power. The new president, Jacinto Peinado, was nothing more than a figurehead. The new United States minister observed that when Trujillo called for Peinado, he did so, quote, with the air of whistling for a well-trained house dog. So while the charade of democracy was played out in the Republic, Trujillo stayed busy pulling the strings. In particular, he was engrossed in a project which would be the jewel in his crown, the reorganization of foreign debt and ending the decades-old American control over the collection of customs revenue. For years, Trujillo negotiated with the United States on the matter. Finally, in September 1940, both sides came to terms and signed the Hull-Trujillo Treaty. The Roosevelt administration was pleased to dispose of the old contract, which felt embarrassingly out of date and imperialistic. It also assured them of Trujillo's loyalty for the duration of World War II. For El Jefe, the treaty represented the economic liberation of his country. Though the Republic was still in debt, it now controlled its own customs. Essentially, 
This allowed the Republic to govern its own finances. The treaty, plus an excess of reserves sparked by World War II, left Trujillo in an excellent position. He was riding higher than ever before. He even earned the title Restorer of Financial Independence. But not everyone was actually reaping the benefits of Trujillo's economic moves. And in fact, many Dominicans suffered under the regime's iron thumb. Citizens started to flee into exile. Many of these exiles were undoubtedly furious about their loss of status and power, as well as horrified by Trujillo's crimes. And throughout the 1940s, many were eager for a chance to get even. By the summer of 1949, a large group of exiles had concentrated in Guatemala. From there, they launched an attempted invasion of the Dominican Republic. In June, six planes loaded with Dominican exiles flew to the Republic. Unfortunately, the attempted revolution was doomed from the start. Of the six, only one made it to Dominican soil. The others either landed prematurely or turned back at the last moment. The single plane that did make it only carried 15 men, and they didn't accomplish much. Within days, 10 of the wannabe revolutionaries were killed and the other five taken prisoner. Speaking of his victory, Trujillo remarked, I am still here, and those who tried to overthrow me are dead. Still, in response to threats from abroad, Trujillo steadily beefed up the Dominican armed forces in the early 1950s. Despite the Dominican Republic's small size and relatively limited wealth at the time, its military became among the strongest in the Caribbean and among the most brutal. Thanks to his absolute control of his ruthless military machine, Trujillo could feel relatively secure from the machinations of his fellow Caribbean caudillos. Trujillo's reign took on an air of triumph as 1955 approached. The year would mark a quarter century of Trujillo in power. The Dominican Congress declared it to be the Year of the Benefactor. It was decided that the best way to honor the benefactor was to hold a massive World's Fair. The fairground itself was built on a large stretch of land on the western edge of Ciudad Trujillo. Trujillo's 16-year-old daughter was made Master of Ceremonies and proclaimed Queen Angelita I. Delivering the opening address, Trujillo remarked, The verdict of posterity does not worry me, because I have not failed the hopes of my people in the exercise of my duty and in the force of my will. The increasing greatness of the nation will be my best witness in the hour of the final judgment of history. Dozens of representatives from around the world attended. The buildings dotting the fair were wonderfully impressive, and Trujillo was eulogized without end. Nevertheless, according to author Robert D. Crassweller, the fair marked the beginning of the decline. There was about it an intimation of overripeness, of power too long and too excessively maintained, now trailing off into megalomania. A few decades earlier, the American occupying force had inadvertently created the conditions for a single caudillo to seize control of the Dominican Republic. Rafael Trujillo had done just that, cementing his rule with violence and terror. But after 1955, 
That violence and terror had overstayed its welcome. As Trujillo attempted to extend his reach beyond his borders, many would come to the realization that perhaps the time had come to move on from El Jefe. Coming up, the era of Trujillo enters its final darkest days. Now back to the story. In 1955, Rafael Trujillo marked a quarter of a century as absolute ruler of the Dominican Republic. But at age 64, he was getting old. In his youth, he had been able to respond to crises with brutal cunning. As he entered his twilight years, however, Trujillo began stumbling into blunder after blunder. The trouble began with a poet named Jesus de Galindes, a Republican veteran of the Spanish Civil War, Galindes had lived in Ciudad Trujillo for a time as an exile, but had run afoul of the regime and moved to New York City. There, he decided to write his doctoral thesis on Trujillo. On March 12, 1956, Galindes suddenly disappeared. Rumor had it he'd been kidnapped and killed by agents sent by Trujillo, but no substantial evidence was found. Then, in December, the car belonging to an American citizen named Gerald Murphy, who had previously disappeared from Ciudad Trujillo, was found. Naturally, the United States demanded an explanation. Scrambling to avoid U.S. retaliation, Trujillo arrested a pilot named Octavio de la Maza. Octavio had flown with Murphy, and the Trujillo regime tried to force him to confess to killing Murphy. De La Massa, however, refused, so he was killed, his death made to look like a suicide. American investigators saw through the ruse, however, and launched their own investigation. What they discovered was this. Murphy, a pilot, had been hired to fly some Dominican agents from New York for some kind of business trip. Murphy landed outside the city on March 12th, the last day Jesus de Galindes had been seen. The Dominican agents left Murphy at the airstrip, though they returned that night in an ambulance. The agents carried a man on a stretcher out of the ambulance and put him on the plane. While it has never been conclusively proven, it is believed the man on the stretcher was Jesus de Galindas. Murphy flew the men back to the Republic. Later, he was supposedly killed in order to cover up the murder of Galindas. The alleged murders of Galindes and Murphy seriously damaged Trujillo's reputation. Murphy was an American citizen, while Galindes had been a lecturer at Columbia University and was practically kidnapped off the streets of New York. In the U.S., there was a growing sense that Trujillo's crimes had been tolerated for too long, and a regime change might be in order. For now, though, the U.S. waited. Meanwhile, El Jefe was making enemies left and right. Back in 1951, Trujillo had helped orchestrate an assassination attempt on the president of Venezuela, Romulo Betancourt, because Betancourt had supported the failed 1949 invasion by Dominican exiles. Such support ignited Trujillo's lifelong hatred and desire for revenge. El Jefe's first attempt involved injecting Betancourt with poison while he was in a crowded street in Havana. Ultimately, the attempt failed. Eight years later, in 1959, 
Betancourt won re-election in Venezuela, and Trujillo resumed his attacks. The Dominican press printed lies about Betancourt being gay, while a Betancourt impersonator was broadcast speaking gibberish, a transparent attempt to make Betancourt seem ridiculous. The real Betancourt responded by lending money to Dominican exiles in Caracas. Annoyed, Trujillo decided to once again try to kill Betancourt. It was a foolhardy decision in the extreme. As Crassweller notes, Betancourt was the head of one of the strongest Caribbean states, and an act so brazen would certainly draw every other state to the side of Venezuela at once. Trujillo didn't care. On June 24, 1960, Trujillo's assassins packed explosives into the trunk of an Oldsmobile and parked it on a street in Caracas. The street was part of a parade route being held that day. As part of the parade, Betancourt would pass right by it. A couple hours later, as the president's Cadillac passed by the Oldsmobile, the assassins detonated the explosives. A military officer riding alongside Betancourt was killed, as was a bystander on the street. Though Betancourt's hands were severely burned, he survived. The assassins were soon found and arrested. The day after the attack, Betancourt, while still hospitalized, publicly accused Trujillo of orchestrating the attack. Trujillo failed to appreciate the hornet's nest he had just kicked. Venezuela called for a meeting of the OAS, or Organization of American States, which soon launched an investigation. In early August, the OAS released a report that Trujillo had indeed supported the assassination attempt. The organization subsequently agreed to break diplomatic relations with the Dominican Republic and impose economic sanctions. Most troubling was that the United States agreed to withdraw its support. The Dominican Republic was now completely isolated. As external pressure mounted against Trujillo, so did internal pressure. As he got older, Trujillo clamped down harder and harder on dissent, which was growing in the wake of economic downturn and international condemnation. More and more people were arrested, tortured, and killed. State suppression reached a crescendo in 1960 with perhaps the most shocking crime of all, the assassination of the Mirabal sisters. For years, Dr. Minerva Mirabal de Tavares, Maria Teresa Mirabal de Guzman, and Patria Mirabal de Gonzalez were opponents of the Trujillo regime. They all spent time in prison for their political activism. Nevertheless, they continued to speak out against the regime. Trujillo had been wanting to kill them for some time, but had thus far stopped short on the advice of counselors. The killing of three sisters, the youngest of whom was 25, seemed a step too far. But by the fall of 1960, Trujillo couldn't tolerate the sisters' denunciations of him any longer. He ordered their assassination. As it happened, the husbands of the Mirabal sisters were in prison for opposing the regime. On November 25th, the sisters were suddenly granted permission to visit them. But this was merely a ploy to bring them out into the open. On their journey home from the prison, the sisters were arrested, tortured, and killed. Their bodies were then put into their own jeep 
and pushed off a cliff in a vain attempt to make the whole thing look like an accident. Few believed that the sisters had died in an accident. Instead, the Dominican public was shocked by their gruesome deaths, and the Mirabal sisters became the most famous martyrs of the Trujillo era. According to historian Frank Moya Pons, the assassination of the Mirabal sisters deeply touched the sensibility of decent people and definitely turned them against Trujillo. The date of their deaths, November 25th, was later chosen by the United Nations as the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Trujillo, as usual, feigned dismay. Two months after the assassination, he decided to walk along the same mountain road where the sister's jeep had been pushed over. El Jefe looked down the slope and remarked, This is where the Mirabal women died, a horrible crime that foolish people blame the government for. Such good women, and so defenseless. The public had witnessed many outrages like this before, but then the economy had been strong, which made turning a blind eye easier. Unfortunately for Trujillo, by the late 1950s to early 1960s, the Dominican Republic was in the midst of an economic crisis. The prices of its exports plummeted. The World's Fair had cost $30 million, yet produced no significant foreign investment, and Trujillo had drained the country's cash reserves in order to nationalize electricity plants and purchase sugar mills. While the falling export prices were outside of his control, the other problems were entirely of Trujillo's own doing. And as Trujillo sabotaged his own economy and brutalized his own people, he also seriously blundered in the international arena. For the United States, Trujillo had become an embarrassment, and there were fears that his increasingly flimsy regime would fall to communism. Military aid to the Dominican Republic, though not substantial, was nevertheless terminated. President Eisenhower did put into place a plan to overthrow Trujillo, but Kennedy decided to cancel it out of fear that the subsequent power vacuum would lead to a second Fidel Castro. So it fell on Dominicans to take matters into their own hands and free their country from El Jefe. Though the conspiracy to assassinate Trujillo came together rather suddenly, the desire to put a stop to Trujillo had been building for years. Of the seven principal conspirators, some of whom had connections to the old Horacio Vasquez regime of the 1920s, none wanted Trujillo dead more than Antonio de la Maza. Antonio de la Maza was, in fact, the brother of Octavio de la Maza. Octavio was the man framed for the death of the American pilot Gerald Murphy during the whole Jesus de Galindez affair. For years, Antonio de la Massa had been eager for the opportunity to avenge his brother's murder. It seemed the time had finally come. Because the CIA had contacts among the conspirators, American intelligence was quick to catch wind of a possible plot. But instead of getting directly involved, the CIA slipped them rifles and some ammunition and gave them a big wink. Contacts in the American government also informed the conspirators that the U.S. would welcome the end of Trujillo. All that was left was for de la Maza and his cabal to carry out the act. Throughout the spring of 1961, 
Rafael Trujillo became increasingly paranoid that someone from within the regime was trying to depose him. In April, he made a blanket statement on his yacht that a man among them was likely his Judas. And yet, despite this paranoia, he never attempted to beef up his security. So on the evening of May 30th, 1961, Trujillo was driven just outside the capital along the Caribbean shore with only a chauffeur. The conspirators, aware of Trujillo's route in advance, chased down Trujillo with their own cars. As they approached Trujillo, the assassins opened fire with CIA-gifted guns. Trujillo's car stopped and El Jefe jumped out, blood spurting out of him, but he still managed to fire off a revolver. His chauffeur remained in the car, firing a submachine gun and then a rifle. The assassins hopped out of their own car and the gunfight continued. One of them managed to circle around Trujillo and shot him. Illuminated only by the headlights of his car, Trujillo staggered forward, shouted, "I, I, I, I!" and collapsed to the ground, dead. El Jefe was gone. But the era of Trujillo wasn't quite over yet. Following El Jefe's death, his inept and unpopular son, Ramfis, took power. There was enough strength left in the regime to hunt down El Jefe's assassins. Of the seven killers, only one survived. Antonio de la Maza was among those killed. But Trujillo's government had used its last ounce of strength to avenge El Jefe's death. Soon after, Ramfis was driven into exile. Before long, the Dominican Republic descended into a civil war, and in 1965 was briefly occupied by the United States once more. After several years of economic trouble and continued government suppression, the Dominican Republic saw its first peaceful transfer of power in 1978. From there, its fortunes began to improve. Thanks to an expansion of the tourism industry, foreign investment, mining revenues, and a booming telecommunications industry, the country's economy experienced rapid growth. Though it still struggles with issues like high income inequality and corruption, its democratic institutions are far stronger than in the days of Trujillo, and its economy remains one of the largest in the Caribbean. In May 2011, a museum opened detailing the horrors of the Trujillo regime. The government at the time helped fund it, while several of the museum's creators were relatives of Trujillo's victims. The director of the museum, Luisa de Peña Diaz, said that she hoped to rescue the memory of what happened so that new generations of Dominicans wouldn't forget Trujillo's crimes. Historian Laura Derby perfectly sums up the era of Trujillo. She writes that Trujillo established one of the longest and most repressive authoritarian regimes in Latin America, characterized by bouts of extreme carnage interspersed with everyday forms of terror, such as random abductions, pervasive surveillance, and institutionalized forms of ridicule. And yet, Trujillo's grandson would disagree. In response to the museum, he and other family members announced plans to open a counter-museum to honor El Jefe, saying, Did my grandfather commit a number of excesses? Absolutely. He was human. Was he a monster? Absolutely not. 
one can't help but wonder if Rafael Trujillo isn't a monster, who is? Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we begin our study of Efrain Rios Mont, whose brief reign over Guatemala proved to be the bloodiest during the country's decades-long civil war. Among the many sources we used, we found Trujillo, The Life and Times of a Caribbean Dictator by Robert D. Crassweller, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.